how can you come to New York and not shop? So that was the main reason for today. Um, but if we were at home, we would definitely be bidding from the 50% off sales at our local department stores. Hello and welcome to NPR's Planet Money. I'm Alex Bloomberg. And I'm Hannah Jaffe-Walt. Today is Monday, December 28th. And on the show today, Alex, we're going to be talking about one thing, one, I have to say, pretty unexpected, singular technological advance that transformed American media. And we are not talking about the Internet. Oh, man, because I have a lot of things to say about the Internet. I really think it's going to have a transformative impact. We're not going there today. Okay. Sorry. All right. Okay. First, we need to do our indicator. And it has to do with a conversation that we've been having here around the office. You were talking about the pizza, aren't you? You can't let it go. I, it is crazy. It is insane. Okay. So the indicator is $30. That's right. $30 for one pizza pie. I went to this place Lucali's in Brooklyn, New York. And I should explain that right after the, the very next day, Adam Davidson went to that same pizza place and ordered the same pizza. After hearing me rant about the $30 price. And he said that the pizza was totally worth $30. In fact, it was the most delicious pizza you've ever Which had. Which is absolutely not true. Anyone listening out there knows $30 <laughs> is way too much to spend for a pizza, no matter how good. Right. And the point is, you guys can't let it drop. In fact, you bring it up even when you're doing interviews together. <laughs> That's true. It is how we started talking to Matthew Gens. He's an economist at the University of Chicago. He came on to talk to us about something that has nothing to do with pizza, but we had to start by asking him that. What is the most that I would pay for one pizza pie? Mm -hmm. Um, Gosh, it really depends how good it is. It's really, really good. It could be a lot. Um, On the right day, I would pay, I don't know. $25, $30. Wow. So I went to this pizza place that's down the street from my house, and it was $30 a pie, which I thought was pretty outrageous for a pizza, no matter how good. And Adam went to the same place last night and thinks that I'm crazy. I would definitely pay 50 for that pizza. (laughs) Yeah, I I think for the, you know, on the right night when I'm hungry enough. Damn. All right. So that means I'm $20 richer, right? <laughs> what what economists call that a uh, consumer surplus? You're consumer getting more surplus. of it in this case. Yeah, that I would have paid fifty. I only had to pay thirty. Yeah, I think you're you're doing pretty well in that case. <laughs> so I can tell my wife that every time I eat there, well, I'm twenty dollars richer. Yeah, I don't know how how that makes her better off at all, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> it seems pretty good for you. Okay, Alex. With that settled. Adam and Matthew Genskow are both insane suckers. We can move on uh, to the real question that we brought Genskow in to answer. So here is that question. There used to be a time, a time not too long ago, you know, 100 plus years ago, when our country's newspapers, they would have mission statements. They would just come out with mission statements like, our goal is to serve and promote and advance the interests of the Republican Party or the Democratic Party. It was totally accepted that newspapers were completely partisan. And not only that, they would take money from those political parties. The questions we ask today, is MSNBC biased? Is Fox biased? Is NPR reporting biased? No one asked those questions because they would have been seen as stupid questions. Everyone knew all the major outlets were biased. Right. Everyone completely expected that newspapers were biased. And so the question that we had was just, you know, how did we go from that not that long ago to what we have today where, you know, say what you will about bias in our newspapers. We all think bias is a bad thing. We expect that news media should not take money or bribes from politicians, shouldn't be funded by one particular political party. 
you know, basically, how did we get an independent press? And Genscat told us an interesting story about how that happened. To start, he said, you have to go back to the 1870s. Newspapers in the 1870s were partisan in a way that makes partisan media today seem quite balanced and independent. Most newspapers in 1870 were explicitly affiliated with a political party. And what were the articles like? like? Yeah, I think there was, there was again, just a degree of explicit partisanship that, that would be, I think, quite surprising to people used to reading modern newspapers. So they were like really, really emotional, worked up editorials. Uh, we looked at one scandal, the Credit Mobilier scandal that happened in 1870. Um, and so this was a case basically of some people bribing uh, congressmen. And the newspapers on the side, on the Republican side that were defending the Congress people said things like, this is a, a libel invented by knaves and retailed by fools. There were lots of ad hominem attacks on the editors and publishers of the opposing newspapers. There was, there was lots of very heated rhetoric. And how did the money work? So, so not only would you be a newspaper in, say, you know, the newspaper of Springfield, and you would say, my mission statement is to advance the Republican cause, but you would also be taking money in order to do that. Sure. So there were a few different ways that money flowed from the Republican Party to the Republican newspaper in Springfield. The most important was probably the awarding of these printing contracts by the government. So there would be these provisions in the law saying that all of the laws that were passed, various other proceedings of government had to be published for public distribution or for various kinds of distribution. And so probably the single most important way you channeled money to newspapers was was giving them those printing contracts. There were also jobs. Uh, I think newspaper publishers were often made postmaster general, which was a very lucrative and not all that demanding job. And then there are also examples of private individuals who were running for office, who were privately financing newspapers for pretty clearly political reasons. So if I'm the Republican paper in Springfield, if I fulfill my mission of promoting the Republican cause, which I most likely believe in myself, I may get a lucrative printing contract. I can get donations from that guy running for re-election or this new young Republican up-and-comer to give me money. And and I may get to be a postmaster. Um, you know, so there's a lot of benefits. And, you know, now that the Democrats in Springfield, they might not buy my paper, but that's okay with me because I'm making tons of money from my Republican friends and funders. So Genskow says, as with anything, in 1870, publishers were doing a basic cost-benefit analysis. If I was publishing a newspaper in Springfield... I had to weigh what kind of content is going to win me the largest readership in Springfield against the possibility that that some of the stories I might report would anger or or be against the interests of the party that I was partially funded by. Moving a little bit in in the direction of independence or nonpartisanship typically was associated with winning more readers. So so that newspaper faced a trade-off between can be a little more partisan, which is going to make the party happy, or be a little bit less partisan and potentially increase uh, our readership and, and profits from selling newspapers. So we have the 1870s. We have these this newspaper in Springfield that is is making this calculation that the trade-off between getting this government contract where I can print my paper versus the the readers that I'm losing because I'm putting out a biased product 
that that's working for me. I figured out the balance there. And then you described that that changed a little bit over the next couple decades. That balance really shifted. Yeah. So there there were a number of really important changes. The first, I think, was just the cost of printing newspapers fell dramatically. So there were innovations in technology. Probably the single most important was figuring out how to make paper from wood pulp. So in the 1850s or 1860s, newspapers were printed on rag paper. Uh, like linen? Like Basically like linen. Yeah, exactly. Wow. Uh, which was really expensive. So newsprint in 1870 cost, I think in today's dollars, uh, something like $25 per pound. And by 1920, the cost had fallen to more like $5 per pound. Wait, there was paper was not like wood-based until the 1880s? Yeah, that's correct. I think I think in 1867, uh, the process for making paper from wood pulp was invented. The wood pulp paper was not at all durable, um, but it was really, really cheap and conducive to, to printing newspapers. The telegraph was introduced in, in 1844, and, and which meant that the amount of information newspapers had at their disposal to print was, was much, much bigger. And there were big increases in literacy over over this period. So the number of people who could buy and read a newspaper grew. Putting all those things together, they meant that the money you could make by running a newspaper grew exponentially. Well, on both sides, the, the supply was cheaper and the demand was greater. Exactly. So, there, yeah. were, there were more people. There were more people who could read them. The quality you could produce because of the telegraph and so forth was higher. The cost of printing it was lower. And just as you would expect, what that meant was there was a huge increase in the number of newspapers. Prices of newspapers fell. And, and so, so all, of, all of that together meant that, that newspapers were a very profitable business. So, so now if I'm that publisher in Springfield, things have changed for me. It's a lot cheaper for me to print my paper and there's more people that I can reach and there's more people who are interested in what I'm putting out. Yeah, exactly. And so that trade-off you were making between catering to the interests of a political party or trying to make money by selling newspapers has tilted pretty dramatically in the direction of you might want to try to sell some newspapers. Because I, because that that government contract to to print the newspapers isn't as big a deal to me anymore, given that I can make some of that money by just selling my paper to more people. Exactly, exactly. So the the lesson here is is wood pulp has given us our independent press, our idea of press as being independent. Han and I owe the very idea of our jobs <laughs> to cheap wood pulp. I I think that. That's perhaps a slight oversimplification, no. but probably true. <laughs> <laughs> so, Pretty close to the truth. I mean, this story is so crazy. And the thing I love about it is that you can imagine it hearing is like, the, you know, the, the march towards progress and towards the independent press. And it has to do with like political awakening and grand, you know, these grand causes when really it's just about like it's all based on wood pulp. Basically. <laughs> <laughs> it's all just about wood pulp. Um, you know, and I find it interesting to think about the story just – you know, the way he frames it is an economic trade-off. It sort of makes sense that publishers respond to demand and to what we, you know, the consumers want. And the incentive is not necessarily, like you said, this grand strengthening our democracy or telling the most true, real story, but rather it's just about what you lose if you don't do that. Now, of course, we assume being creatures of 2009 
almost 2010, and not of the 1870s, that we are better off because we have an independent press. Um, our reporters are not taking bribes from politicians. If that did happen, we would think it was very scandalous and very wrong. Right, which is just when you took that bribe, I told you I think that's scandalous <laughs> and wrong, remember? Just like I said, pizza shouldn't be $30. <laughs> exactly. We all have our moral compass. Right. And, and, and we think that this means in the end we get a, a truer picture of what is actually happening. And Hannah, you, you and Adam asked Genskow about this, right? Right, because that seems obvious, like an independent press means you get, you know, less bias, a more true story. But we were just sort of curious, like, was it possible in the 1870s, if I was just your average citizen and you have the Republicans, you know, calling the Democrats liars and corrupt and vice versa on the front page and, you know, both sides probably printing lies in their own papers that they fund about each other. But but was it possible to actually get a true sense of what was happening? Do we get more access to the truth with our independent press than they had? It's not at all obvious which of these things is better. There's an analogy to, to the way we run courts in this country, where we don't appoint a single attorney whose job is to present an unbiased, balanced view of the defendant's case and the prosecutor's case. We say, we want to have one attorney whose job it is to just represent the defendant and one attorney who's going to do everything they can to, to represent the prosecution. And you can think of the kind of press we had in the 19th century as similar, a kind of conscientious reader who really wanted to get both sides of the story and who would go out and read both the Democratic newspaper and the Republican newspaper um, could have learned most of the facts uh, involved and and potentially even more facts than they would have learned if they had an independent newspaper. Uh, the problem is, of course, that uh, most readers didn't do that, and so it's a very different thing. If you had if you had a courtroom where, you know, half of the jury only listens to the defense and half of the jury only listens to the prosecution, then this kind of adversarial judicial system doesn't work very well. So, Alex, the obvious thing that I kept thinking through this whole conversation is how, you know, 100 plus years ago, our news media was transformed. And it was all thanks to this one moment, you know, one guy kind of or maybe a woman in a room inventing wood pulp. And that totally transforms the way our news is distributed and in turn what the news is. And, of course, here we are today in exactly the same moment. I knew we would get to the Internet because I have a lot of thoughts about the Internet. I really do think it's going to be transformative. But it is the same thing, right? There's some, you know, some military scientists in the 1960s create this ARPANET, which eventually becomes the Internet. Right. And the way that the Internet has transformed media is really undercovered. Um, Alex, so I hope that you do get to it. Um, but, you know, there is it's this... going to be revolutionary. <laughs> Mark my words. Um, and if you think about it there, there is also this cost-benefit trade-off that's changing things. You know, it's much cheaper now, again, to distribute content. And it's also created this environment in which it's expected that that content is free. So that is a story that we will not talk about now. Right. That is it for us today, as a matter of fact. Coming up on Wednesday, we are going to talk about the Internet um, and one small, interesting idea for making money in our current media world. And this is an idea that is shifting the cost-benefit calculation. In the meantime, check us out at npr.org slash money or send us your thoughts, pictures, questions, whatever, to planetmoney at npr.org. I'm Alex Bloomberg. And I'm Hannah Jaffe-Walt. Thanks for listening. The calculation prices.